John said, I pastor Trinity on the west side, just a couple of miles from here. When I was driving over, I live in Howell Station, uh, just off the Beltline, uh, right by the Reservoir Park, where you guys are going to have Sporty Sunday. And I, I realized today that um, I live quite literally right in the middle between Trinity and, and Redeemer. And it was just such a joy to be able to come and spend time with you guys today. Uh, I want to say two things. Number one, um, when I was a senior in high school, I was invited to join Chorus because they didn't have enough guys. And the teacher guaranteed me an A. She said, if you will sign up for Chorus, you will make an A. She gave me a B. So if that's any indication that not everyone is cut out for this stage, Rachel, I've got your back. Uh, I can't carry a note in a barrel, but I would encourage some of you adults to bring instruments to family worship. I think that like an amp with a guitar would be great. Something like that would be awesome. Uh, and and the, 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 the next thing is a disclaimer. Um, so Pastor Mac uh, gave me the text for today. And it was convenient for him that he gave me the topic of uh, hell, burning, and the devil. Uh, and so if, if, if you have any questions about anything that I'm about to say, uh, I would just love for you to email me. My email address is leon at redeemeratl.org. Um, seriously, it's an honor to hold the word of God, even maybe especially the hard parts of the Bible. So what I want to ask you to do, I'm going to read and we're going to pray, is I want to ask you to give Jesus a hearing today. I think that so often as humans, we think of Jesus as um, miracle worker, as wise saying, as um, savior in a very abstract way, but oftentimes what we don't think of is that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, was the smartest man to ever live, which means we have to listen to him intellectually. Even when we come to a passage, and I promise you, as we read this text, you're going to hear something in the reading about slavery, about the devil about burning. You're going to hear some very provocative things. And what I want to ask you to do is to give Jesus a hearing. Because I actually believe he has something really good to say about our lives. I believe that there's an invitation in a passage like this that is full of life and full of grace, even if it feels at times like it steps right up on our toes a little bit. What I have found in following God is that there are times where Jesus will provoke me in order to get me to open up and be curious about the meaning of life and purpose and ultimate reality. And so what I want you to do is I want you to just give Jesus a hearing, okay? Amen. Matthew 13, I'm going to read verses 24 to 30 and then 36 to 43. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was asleep, everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, and the enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So they had a hard time with it as well. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of the Lord. I told you. Father, help us. Uh, We pray in these next few moments that you would give us ears to hear you, Jesus. We pray, God, that you would give us the grace to be at rest here, that whatever it is we brought with us today to church, whatever sense of worry or distraction, whatever might keep us from being really present here to think true and deep thoughts about you and about our own lives, we pray for the grace to, to truly be here, to, to rest here, and to trust that what you have to say to us is good and leads us to life. God, I speak blessing over this church. Thank you, God, for Redeemer. And I pray that you would have mercy on all of us, Lord, as we seek to please you and say yes to you in a broken and fallen world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there are only a few movements in this passage. Is this not working? It's weird. Okay. I know. It's awkward. But what? All right. So there are going to be a few movements in this passage today. Uh, Just a few things that we're going to look at that will help us navigate our way through the text. What I've found in my own engagement with the Bible is that if I can chart a course through a biblical text, I feel like I'm not as overwhelmed by it. So like, for instance, today, if you hear this reading and you hear a word about slaves and about slavery, that can be so distracting. You'll think like, are they going to get to that and talk about it? Trust me, I am going to say something about that, specifically what slavery in the ancient world means and how it's different from chattel slavery. It was not good, but it's not identical to what we understand when we think of slavery in our modern context, specifically our colonial context. And also, when you hear something about the devil, it's so distracting sometimes that we don't know, like, is he going to get to that? Is he going to say anything to it? And I just want to let you know I'm going to address both of those things. But we're going to just walk right through the text just like we would if we were at the West Side Reservoir Park on a sporty Sunday. We're going to get there. So first, let's understand what Jesus is saying. He tells us about a field. The first movement in this passage is a field. And I think that it's really important for us here today to hear the word field in two different ways. On one level, the field is the whole world. Jesus is ultimately telling a story about the whole world, all of us. But the field is also, I think, can be understood as a metaphor for the individual life. So what I want to invite you to do for the next few moments is I want you to think on two levels. On one level, we're going to hear a story Jesus tells about the whole world. And then on another level, we're going to hear a story about you, about me. I believe that the parable of the sower, so that's the story that Jesus has just told, also can be understood in the same way. In one hand, the the fields and the various grounds in that story are about the whole world, 
But I also know myself enough to know that I've got all kinds of different types of soil inside me. There are parts of me that say yes to God, and then there are parts of me that are so distracted that I don't see or hear God. And so I believe that Jesus is actually wanting us to think about the field in a way that will invite us to see the macro and the micro. I've, I've, I believe that when you read your Bibles, you've got to learn to think on multiple levels. And this is one of those stories where Jesus asks us to speak or to think or to engage on multiple levels. Here's something Jesus wants you to know about himself. And this is one of those moments where if we're not familiar with Jesus and for familiar with the Jewish context in which Jesus did all of his speaking and thinking and teaching, y'all, the guy never moved outside of about an 80-mile radius of where he was born during his time on earth. Jesus was not jet-setting around the world. Everyone listening to Jesus would have understood that this story was a very typical way for Jewish teachers to use really provocative language in order to get people like us to be confronted with something that might be awkward or uncomfortable. So he's using provocative language to get you to think about something you don't want to think about. And in that sense, we're really no different from Jesus' ancient hearers. He's poking at us, not because he wants to be mean, not because he takes any satisfaction in anything that he's actually saying about ultimate outcomes. He's poking at us to get us to step back from all of our unconscious biases and give him a hearing about ultimate reality. It's my conviction that if Christians are going to mean anything to the world outside the walls of the church, we have to be people who are able to think about and engage ultimate reality. It does you and me no good to sit in a huddle, in a circle, with our heads in the sand, while the whole world is actually asking and thinking and living and, and wrestling with very different questions. Jesus wants Christians, like you and me, to be people who are concerned, concerned with ultimate reality. And there are times where God will step on your toes in order to get you to think about what's real. There are times where God will step on my toes in order to get me to think about my own life. Not just your life, but my life. What's going on inside of me? So as we share for the next few moments, I want you to ask the question, what's real, what's ultimate, what's happening inside of me? Second movement in this passage is this. There are two competing agendas, and they both manifest in the field. Two competing agendas. Now, I just want to say this on the outset. If your name is Darnell, or you know someone named Darnell, I just want to apologize in advance, because I'm going to be using that term a lot today, because Darnell is an ancient weed that is genetically linked to, to wheat, and it's a real problem in this text. So if your name or someone you love is named Darnell, this is not about you, this is about something else that would have been uh, a very common thing for people to hear in the ancient world. So there are two competing agendas. Number one, a farmer sows good seed. That's one agenda. And I just want to say two things about God's agenda for your life. God sows good things into the life of people. God puts good seed. If you remember in the verses immediately preceding this, the parable of the sower, God is the one that's throwing seed. He's liberal, y'all. He throws seed in good places and bad places, hard places and soft places, thorny places, prepared places. God sows good seed. If you don't hear anything about what I'm about to say to you, I want you to hear this. God sows good seed into the life of every human being. 
Some of us sort of receive it. Some of us really receive it. Some of us don't receive it. The second thing we need to understand about God's good seed and God sowing something good is that he's sowing seed in his field. So not only does God have a good agenda for your life, he thinks he, he thinks he's in charge of your life. It's very interesting here because in the ancient world, ownership of a field implied authority and God seems to think that he has something to say about our lives, that he has a leadership, ownership stake in our lives. So as we think about these competing agendas, it's very important for us to understand God has something good and he believes that you're his, that he has the right to put things at play in your life. But the second agenda is that an adversary covertly comes in the middle of the night and sows weeds, darnell it's called, in the farmer's field. Before we go into that, and we're going to look at that, we're going to do a little like, you know, biochemistry here for the next few moments. But before we do that, I just want to say this. If Jesus tells a story about competing agenda, and he says that an adversary sows something intentionally wrong and bad, corrupting into the field, both the world and into us, it begs the question, do we believe in the devil? And a lot of us are just like, no, because I can't imagine a little fella with horns and red tights and a pitchfork and a forked tongue and because it's so cartoonish, many of us do not think a second thought about whether or not we have an adversary. I want to appeal to you to make room for the fact that Jesus may be right. That maybe you have an adversary that you're not meant to become obsessed with. You're not meant to become fixated on. But to ignore completely would be to open us up to potential plundering. And then we live our lives asking, what on earth is going on here? I remember uh, Archbishop Emmanuel Colini, who was the Archbishop of Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide, came and preached at, at my church. He's one of my heroes in the faith. Um, he, he, led, he led a church in the aftermath of Rwandan genocide. I mean, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around that. And he spent time in the, in the prisons. Colini comes from Tutsi origin, and so he would go into prisons and he would speak to Hutu and Tutsis who had killed themselves. There, there was a, a report of an Anglican church where an Anglican priest uh, invited his church and, and he invited Tutsis into his church and he locked the door and set the church on fire and killed them all. I mean, I just want you to think about that level of brokenness, that level of pain. And Colini said it was as if the devil of hell were walking the streets of, of Kigali during that, that summer. It was a horrible time, a hard time. And I would just say to you that making room for personal evil actually helps us intellectually understand some of the darkest things. Like that wasn't really ultimately just about politics gone wrong. That, th there were political players, but there's a better explanation for that level of brokenness. And I would submit to you that in your own life, that there's a better explanation for some of what you experience than just, oh, well, 
she did that or he did that. Sometimes I think we need to make room for the fact that we're being opposed. And so Jesus makes a statement that an enemy comes at night and sows a competitive seed. So here's where we're going to get a little biological. Uh, Darnell is organically related to wheat and yet very, very difficult to distinguish between the early stages of growth. And yet it wraps up in the root ball with wheat. And if you pull the Darnell out, you pull the weed out because they're tied underneath the ground. And so the only way to deal with the problem is to let them grow up together and then their differences become apparent. And then when you're harvesting the whole thing, you take the Darnell and you burn it and you bundle the wheat and you keep it. And so there was something here that everyone listening to Jesus would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about with this rival crop. They would have known exactly what he meant. There was something going on here that actually Romans in the ancient world had laws about not sowing Darnell in neighboring crops. It happened so often that they made laws against it. And so Jesus tells us here and he says, I want you to recognize that one of the strategies of the enemy is to introduce competition into your life and into the world. Because that's what Darnell is. It's competitive. It wraps up. And it restricts and it competes for space and air and water and it hinders a harvest. And so what Jesus is ultimately doing here is he's telling us a story about fruit bearing. He's telling us a story about life. And he's also telling us that we don't always know how to deal with challenges when they come our way. And it leads me to the third movement in the text. The farmer, God, says we're going to adopt a patient approach to the Darnell problem. Our instinct, I will tell you, my instinct is to deal with things like real fast because I get anxious and I get nervous and I want to fix it right now. Now, I know none of you do that, just me. I know none of you like do this in your marriages, with your kids, at work, with your friends, where you just want to like fix a problem real fast. I'm the only one, I'm sure. God says we're going to take a patient approach to the Darnell problem. So do you understand it's human nature to want to start pulling things up real quick? And it's God's nature to say, as these things grow, there will be a clear difference. Now, I think about that. I I know some people, and the outcome of their life is not great. So in that sense, Jesus is telling a story about the ultimate trajectory of people. But I also know in my own life, there are places where... I've got to give some stuff some time in order to find out what's real and what's not real, even inside of me. God always takes a slower approach. And you know why? Because God doesn't get worked up and anxious like we do. God tells really long stories. Can I get an amen? Thank God he tells long stories. Has there been some times in my own life where if you had just hit stop, end it wouldn't have been a good story two years ago i hit the wall burned out left my job for four months wasn't sure who i was what i believed whether i was even going to make it i felt almost positive i wasn't going to be able to come back and be a pastor and it wasn't because i had done something bad i wasn't robbing liquor stores or you know doing terrible things but i felt so broken and worn out that I just felt like maybe I'm Darnell. Maybe I'm not the good plant 
that I was hoping I would be. And I just want to say that if you're in a place right now to where you're hearing this and you're going, am I? I got some Darnell tendencies. The fact that you're asking that question means God's not finished working. Sometimes things that you think are never going to be redeemed end up being totally redeemed. And then there are parts of us where we just don't want to face reality. And God looks at those parts and he says, that's got to go. Any view of God and life and your life that doesn't allow God to say some stuff has to go is an, is an impoverished view. Sometimes God, in his own kindness, will say, I want to put my hand on something and deal with it. So the Darnell problem takes time. And if you feel like a stalk of Darnell, I just want to say to you, take some time and find some weedy people in your life and get with them. I was thinking, is it Pat that was up here a few minutes ago was talking about some of those Bible, Bible studies? I mean, that go into some spaces where you are in opportunities to talk about things that really matter. It'll wake up the parts of us that want to say yes to the Lord. So Jesus tells a story ultimately about you becoming who God's called you and made you to be. And then he gets us to the end. The last movement in this text is about burning and shining. And I just want to say this is uncomfortable, but I believe that it's time for us to hear Jesus. What he's saying here on the human level, like so like when I think about people in the whole world, the fields, the whole world, what he's saying in part is that there will be a time to call cards and that what your life becomes will actually become what it is. There will come a time where you will be who you will be, where we are moving in one direction or another. There will be a harvest, Jesus is saying. But I also believe that there are lots of mini harvests, like little seasons of change and transitions where we get to step back and evaluate and ask God who we're becoming. C.S. Lewis once said brilliantly, I think, that the central part of us is becoming either a creature of heaven or a creature of hell, incrementally, one day at a time. And I'm going to read something here in a few moments from one of my heroes, Dallas Willard, because I think he actually hits the nail on the head. And if you can't follow along with me and want these notes, just email Pastor Mac and I'll share my notes so that these quotes can be there if you want them. So let's think about burning for a minute. Y'all, Jesus is telling us a story here about a poisonous plant in order to get you to think about the fact that your life and the contents of your life actually matters. The farmer must remove the poisonous plant if the field is to be preserved. Removing the poison is an act of salvation and preservation for the field itself. Jesus is trying to help us to see this for what it is. So, two things. All causes of sin, Jesus says, will be destroyed. All the parts of you that are broken, that move in the direction that God doesn't have in his heart for you, Jesus is saying, I will burn those things up. I will destroy the causes of sin. And then, uncomfortably, he says, all evildoers will be destroyed. People who've rejected the kingdom and the king. And this is where... Leon's done me no favors to give me a text where I can't avoid this. Hell is the logical end game for certain people for whom they say no, 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 no to God. 
It's my conviction that if there is a door in hell, it is likely locked from the inside, not the outside. And I'll say more about that in a moment. God in his wisdom and in his mercy has given us the right to become something other than what he desires for us to be. But I don't think we accidentally go to hell. I believe that it's actually much more difficult than we might even imagine. So here's what Dallas Willard in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, says. What is a lost soul? Is it just someone God's mad at? When is a person lost? Is anybody lost today? Willard says considerable confusion on this topic has resulted from trying to think of lost in terms of its outcome. Theologically, that outcome is hell, a most uncomfortable notion. Certainly, if you are lost in any sense, there is little likelihood of your arriving where you want to be. We're not lost because we're going to wind up in the wrong place. We're going to wind up in the wrong place because we're lost. Something that is lost is something that's not where it's supposed to be and therefore not integrated into the life of the one who calls us to be certain kinds of people. So hear this. He says, thus no one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who would go there. But their orientation toward self leads them to become the kind of person for whom the away from God life is the only place for which they're suited. It's a place they would in the end choose for themselves rather than to humble themselves before God and accept who he is. Hear that. That's where the lock on the inside versus the outside comes in. Whether or not God's will is indefinitely flexible, we know the human will is not. There are limits beyond which we cannot bend back. We cannot turn back. We cannot repent. One should seriously inquire if to live in a world permeated with God and the knowledge of God is something that we want. If not, we can be assured that God will excuse us from his presence. I appreciate what Dallas Willard says here because what he's saying is God is not jumping up and down rejoicing when we think about hell. I believe that the desire of God is for us to shine versus burn. That's his heart for us. And yet, God has given us the power to say no. If I ask the question, am I Darnell? The fact that I'm simply asking that question puts me in a really good and safe place before God. Because what I'm saying there is I feel like a mixed bag. I feel like a sinner and the last time I checked, Jesus is really welcoming to us when we acknowledge our brokenness and our sin. So again, if you want to discuss this further, email Leon. He would love to talk. And I'm sure when Pastor Drew comes back at the end of August, he would love to do it as well. And at the very least, I might not get invited back because I had to deal with such an uncomfortable space. I'll say one more thing about that and then we'll jump into the very end. In his book, Paralandra, C.S. Lewis talks about um, people being unmade, ended. Uh, I actually believe that um, there are a lot of ways to think about eternity and hell, and Jesus is asking us to think about it here, but one way is that when things are burned, they're over. It's not conscious torment. It's just done. And the way I understand God, if, if he's merciful and kind, he would, he would unmake us if, if we chose that road 
uh, versus keeping us forever in a place of pain. But that's just one thought. Here's how he ends the story. Jesus talks about wheat shining in the sun. He talks about being at home and at rest. He talks about being a thing of beauty, a thing of nourishment, a thing that makes beer. He talks about joy and life. He talks about you being made to be certain things. And I want to say to you that in his mercy, God makes you to be a certain kind of person. And even when we struggle, we're moving down that road to become that kind of a person. And so I want to speak God's blessing over you today that you would know that you're loved and known and seen by him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your grace. For my friends, Lord, we, Lord Jesus, have sat and held a very challenging passage of the Bible. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord, about where we are, that you would give us the confidence.